Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. In today's episode, Mark Rubo in conversation with novelist Colm Toybin. Colm Toybin's latest epic novel, The Magician, is the story of a man of intense contradictions. Centred on the life of Thomas Mann, whose inner life is shown to be hesitant, fearful, and secretive. His blindness to impending disaster in the Great War will force him to rethink his relationship to Germany as Hitler comes to power. In The Magician, Colm Toybin captures the profound personal conflict of a very public life, and through this life creates an intimate portrait of the 20th century. Before we start, a quick reminder. As this is a recording of an event held live via the internet, there has been some impact on the sound quality of the episode. And now, here's the host of the event, Readings Programming Manager, Chris Gordon. Hello, my name is Chris, and I'm here on behalf of Readings and on behalf of Pan Macmillan, and I'm here to welcome you, but I'm also here to spend a couple of minutes making sure that we all acknowledge that wherever we are, in particular in Australia, that we are living on land that's not ours. We're living on land that's not been ceded. Of course, this land belongs to the First Nations people, and it seems to me that we're incredibly lucky to live somewhere that is so glorious and where we have access to stories and song lines to make better sense of the land on which we live. At the moment, I'm speaking from the Kulin Nation, and I would like to pay my respects on behalf of all of you here in the audience and indeed give my gratitude to the First Nations people, saying thank you, thank you for letting us live in this beautiful land. I'd like to now introduce you to someone who sits actually on the board of the Indigenous Literacy Foundation, who has been the founding chair of the Melbourne Writers Festival and has been the managing director of readings for for just a couple of years now, just a couple of years, let's just say that, but also has been my boss, my mentor for, for many years now, the great Mark Rubo. Mark, it is a pleasure to see you. I've been missing you in the office that we don't have anymore. What a treat it is to see your smiling face here on a Wednesday afternoon. It's great to see you too, Chris. And I've been keeping your seat warm. I have been going in a bit. Thank you so much. Over to you now, Mark. Over to you to introduce today's entertainment. Well, thank you, Chris. Um, And welcome, everybody. Um, I would uh, just like to introduce... Our guest today, I'm sure you're here because you know of him. Colm Toybean is known to many for his wonderful works, uh, including Brooklyn, Nora Webster, Heather Blazing, and The Master. He's probably one of Ireland's greatest authors. Uh, I'm an incredible fan of his, as I'm sure you are. When I told one of my staff members that I was going to talk to him, she burst out of her skin and said, oh, my God, he's my favourite author. I just want to see him. Uh, And I'm sure many of you feel like that. So we're really privileged to have you here, Colm. You're a very busy man. Uh, I read that you're working on your next novel. You're also Chancellor of Liverpool University, Mellon Professor of English Literature at Columbia University, and lots and lots of other things. And also you're a prolific critic writing for the New York Review of Books and many other journals. And that's quite a good segue because I was going to ask you, how did you come to choose Thomas Mann? 
The books, the Thomas Mann novels were very fashionable when I was in university. And I wonder if that was the case also in Australia, where they were very well published by Penguin. And The Magic Mountain especially was a book that, you know, it felt good if you were in the film society and you were looking at Bergman films and Goddard films. You were also carrying The Magic Mountain under your arm. So by the time I was in my early 20s, I had read most of the work of Thomas Mann, but I knew nothing about him. And I suppose I believed in those years that being an author was a very distant thing. It was that you imagined a story, you wrote it down, and it was, and it was published without knowing the amount of the self, the amount of experience or, or personal history um, that went into a book. For example, that the, his novel, Buddenbrooks, was really what was a, a biography of his family. And there were so many autobiographical elements in it, and so too with the later novel, Dr. Faustus. But what happened with Mann was, and, and I think it was something he himself was alert to, that in his will, he, he wrote down that 35 years after his death, his diaries were to be opened. And then he changed that 35 to 25. And when the diaries were opened, it really flummoxed scholars because there were people working all their lives on the idea of Thomas Mann, father of six children, as someone who had used, say, homosexuality in Death in Venice as a metaphor and had the boy as a symbol of beauty. And it was all symbolic or metaphorical. Well, the diaries pretty well proved that that wasn't the case, that Thomas Mann, as the most respected and respectable man in Germany, was, would, be, would, be, would give a long lecture on some scholarly German subject. And uh, he, he would be stiff and, 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 and very formidable. But actually, what he was doing was he was thinking about a young man he'd seen in the third row. He would have identified him early and he would gaze at him and he would want the gaze returned. And he would go home and write it in his diary. And so everyone took a, a new view emerged of Thomas Mann. Then biographers got to work. And um, in 1995, three biographies came out at the same time in English of Thomas Mann. And I reviewed them and I reviewed them at some length. And of course, it really did change everything because we saw in a way what an ambiguous figure he was that when people talk about the man who suffers and the mind which creates, there were enormous gaps and ambiguities in him, not only in his sexuality, I think, but in his general, I think, fear of life that didn't emerge so strongly in the books, but actually was probably the impulse behind writing them. That, 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 he, that he was not a brave man. He was not especially intelligent. I mean, he was not astute. He didn't see things politically clearly. His um, antics at the beginning of the First World War seems strange for this very conservative man to go all out as a German militarist in uh, September, October 1914, and then to calm down five or six years later and become an, uh, sort of an ordinary, middle-of-the-road bourgeois Democrat which was, of course, looked like a good thing, an easy thing in Germany of the early 20s, but turned out, of course, not to be under pressure. So that no matter what you do with him, you can't pin him down. And um, in the end, you know, at the end of his life, he wrote Felix Krull, which I don't know if anyone's read it, but it's a, it's a comic novel uh, that he, he realised he had probably one more book in him. He was in his late <laughs> 70s. And he went back 40 years to the story of this imposter, this con man, this confidence man, Felix Krull. And he put in a lot of things from his own life where, you know, he, he, instead of being pompous about who he had been, he became comic and he saw, in a way, our... our what we do in the world as we attempt to be plausible. 
That is our daily routine each day, our efforts to be plausible. And he spent his life trying to be plausible, and a lot of the time he was very successful. But in the end, he wrote a comic novel about it. So you, you can't say one thing about him without someone arguing with you that the opposite is also true. Now, once that sort of ambiguity begins, I can work with that. If it's merely that he's homosexual and he's married, that's not enough. I mean, I mean that's just maybe hypocrisy or secrecy or concealment, but it's not enough. You, you need more than that. And I suppose the other thing that really drew me to him was the idea of loss. He, he came from a very important commercial family in Lübeck, and they, they went back generations. And he had a right to feel that he himself or one of his brothers would inherit this. So on the streets of Lübeck, which is a small city, he would be noticed and watched and known as one of the mans. But his father died when he, when he was 14 or 15, and everything was lost because the father willed that the company be wound up. Thomas Mann's mother, who was, who was reasonably young, um, had five children, and um, she moved to Munich, which was a very big move in those years. Um, Germany had was well, united in 71. This is about 91. And uh, the move from Lübeck on the Baltic to Bavaria would have really been a big psychic move. And when Thomas Mann went there, he had lost everything. You know, he had lost his home which he rebuilt brick by brick in the novel Buddenbrooks. He recreated not only his own life in Lübeck, but the life of his father and the life of his grandfather, the life of his great-grandfather. He, he set about recreating what had been so starkly lost. I, I, I'm fascinated by that idea. So on the surface, he's a very ordinary bourgeois man, or that's what he aspires to, as you say, this sort of recognition and a comfortable life. I mean, all through the book, he's sort of building grand houses and wearing beautiful clothes. <laughs> uh. Yeah. I mean, he was never short of money. At the time, royalties for authors, I don't know how this ever changed, but at the time <laughs> when he was starting, it was 25%. He was terribly well published in America. He was the only German writer that anyone was reading, but every household of a certain sort in America had Thomas Mann's books that was very important. I, I think the second thing um, that made me really interested in him was, a, was also a book, first of all, his diaries, but his wife in her 90s dictated her memoirs, a book called Unwritten Memories. And it's a beautiful book. Um, it shows just how wry, how ironic, how astute, how clever, and how self-deprecating and witty she was. And she just says in the book, yes, yes, we were in Venice in 1911. And yes, Tommy could not stop looking at this boy. Um, oh, that happened, all right. He didn't follow him in the streets. That he didn't do. But all the rest happened. And um, she was uh, really from a fascinating background. There were assimilated Jews uh, living in Munich. Her father was a mathematician professor, but he was tremendously rich, uh, having inherited railway shares from his own father. And he was a great supporter of Wagner. She was the only daughter. She was one of the first German women ever to go to university. Or she was studying science. And they were, they were great bohemians. And um, Thomas Mann's wife's Katia, her brother studied with Mahler. And so, so the house was filled with, with, with that sort of culture that Thomas Mann was still a provincial, even though he had published Wittenbrooks, even though he was a published author. He was still from Lübeck. He had not been brought up in a house where there were big parties and composers like Mahler. It was not his world. When she married him, it seemed to me that she had no real illusions about him. And she had six children with him. And um, I think she's always ahead of him politically. For example, in the yeah. First World War, she doesn't feel this patriotic, militaristic sentiment. I mean, she just doesn't have them. And she's, she's always more rational to him. 
And when you say about him being, you know, conservative, um, ordinary, bourgeois. So in 1933, they're outside Germany, they're in Switzerland. The children warn them not to come back in. And it's pretty clear now that they're going to lose everything. They have two beautiful houses in Germany and they have a lot of money in the bank. And his diaries are in a safe in, in the house. And I think she's, it's pretty clear to her that they would never get back again, that it's over. The, the life as Germans in Germany is over. But also Thomas Mann will not denounce Hitler because he wants his books still to be on sale in Germany. His books are not burned in the big fire. His brother's books, Heinrich's books are burned in that, but Thomas's are not. He holds out for three years until 36 before denouncing Hitler, which is a very long time considering what was going on within Germany. And he does so really as a result of pressure from his wife. And, and, and I think that right through she's ahead of him in seeing what's coming and seeing what's possible, in, in just being generally astute about life. He's, he's not like that. And um, so it, it becomes a very successful marriage, despite the fact uh, of his homosexuality. And, and that's a fascinating idea, that this pair used their intelligence, you know, and became, I think, devoted to each other. You know, there's no, there, there, there are moments of friction, but there are moments where she sees something that he doesn't see. So, so, so in a way, he's, he's, down, he's in his study imagining things all day, but he's not, um, yeah, he's, as you say, he's ordinary. I mean, it's interesting how um, he becomes very dependent on her, doesn't he? Interesting how he seeks her out. He's attracted because he hears about this family and she has a brother, Klaus, the darlings of Bohemian Munich. Yeah, when he's in provincial Lübeck, he finds a magazine and there's a photograph of, of, of a painting by a famous German painter of this family all dressed as sort of circus figures. And he cuts it out and he has it on the wall. So when he goes to Munich, he actually sees these people at concerts and he realizes who they are. These are the people from um, the cutout. And that girl is the girl. You know, so he, he had looked at them, he had studied them. So, so it is that idea that he was moving into a fiction that he had created in moving in with his family. But of course he found them and they were way ahead of him, you know, in terms of wit and in terms of culture. So he was really quite glad always when they left him and Katia to their own devices, you know. He found her twin brother particularly difficult to deal with because he was always laughing at them. What do you think uh, attracted um, Katia to, to this sort of provincial young man? He had published button books, hadn't he, when he had, he, he had published Budenbrooks. And years later, her daughter asks her, why did you marry him? And she says, well, he was the least preposterous of all the men that I saw in that time. And she was really sardonic. And so, you know, the, so the idea of young men paying attention to her because she was so rich, of course, and um, so clever. But he was ahead of them all because he had published Budenbrooks when he was 26. And Budenbrooks was, was becoming a famous book. So that idea that she was, she was attracted to him by his fame, by his early fame. Yeah. Also, she says to her daughter, my father, her own father, was a tremendous philanderer as he was. Mm. And um, he, couldn't just, he couldn't stop himself. And, um, you know, at least I've, had the, I've not had that problem with your father. He didn't spend any time. It, there's no evidence whatsoever that he ever looked at another woman in all the years of their marriage. He looked, in, he looked in another direction, but, not, but also he was very, very careful. Um, he did not humiliate her in public or in private. And um, you know, he was judicious and he did a lot of gazing. 
<laughs> you know, so that they made some sort of pact early in the marriage that she understood where his desires lay and he understood that as a good bourgeois husband, he would have to um, not humiliate her, which he didn't do. As you say, he did a lot of gazing. He didn't do much doing in the homosexual with his relationships. Oh, very little, but there is an extraordinary episode, I mean, really extraordinary, where they go on a holidays in 1927. Now, by that time, he's 52, and um, he has six children. They meet this boy called Klaus Hauser, who's on in this island in the Baltic, is also on holidays with his family. He's about 17. And Thomas Mann does really fall in love with him and manages whatever happens. The boy comes back to Munich with the Manns and stays with the family in the house. And in diary entries, Thomas Mann talks about kissing him. He doesn't talk about anything more than that. But it, it, nonetheless, it's a most extraordinary idea. And part of the idea is that after the First World War, Germany was divided into two, as we know, but one half, there were not just Democrats. They wanted to stop bossing everyone around. They wanted to stop making rules. If they had children, the children could do what they liked. Thomas Mann's children did as they pleased. They took over. They made the rules. And similarly, this boy says to Thomas Mann, my, father, my, my parents have never once told me what to do because my father was in the war and he was ordered around every day. And once I was born, they, you know, they, they were bringing me up. They said, no more rules. And so, you know, we, we have a new sort of Germany emerging that everyone thinks is going to dominate without realizing that the other half of Germany is actually feels the opposite way <laughs> and, yeah. um, and are actually going to prevail. And, you know, so that the, the novel is, there's, there's, a, there's a sort of a dark element that's emerging. But in the meantime, the mans are having a whale of a time because they're not damaged by inflation. His books are selling in America. He gets dollars so that the inflation that ruins his mother's life and ruins his sister's life and really ruins everyone, everyone's life who has a pension or any sort of fixed amount of money or savings, the inflation ruins them. And the mans actually, and he, and he wonders one night that they go to the opera. I mean, they're always at the opera and their chauffeur is waiting for them. I mean, I mean, they're at that level of wealth and the chauffeur will have her fur coat and his, his whatever he's wearing and their, their very grand car will be outside. But he wanders on one of those nights. It, there was always a, a resentful crowd watching them coming out of the opera and indeed going in looking for cheap tickets and a crowd gathered all around because this was where the wealthy were. And he wondered if one of those nights that Adolf Hitler would not have been there uh, trying to get a cheap ticket or just watching these people. Uh, of course, a good number of whom would have been Jewish. I mean, I mean, not all by any means, but nonetheless, he would have associated it with that idea of something from which he was totally excluded. And um, Mann does wonder about that uh, and wonders later, how come he was stirred up by the same music as, as Hitler? How come they both loved the music of Wagner? Not just loved, but found it stirring and unsettling and, and a, it became a serious part of their formation, both of them. How come? Well, you, you talk about um, his feelings for German culture and the German identity, and he's passionate. That, he, you know, as the First World War is breaking out, he's back in Munich and he's in his study and he realises that all these German books, all the poets, all the philosophers, and in his other room he has all the, you know, he has records by... Mm -hmm all the great German composers and that, and that all of this idea of somehow that Germany has a culture, all, all France has a civilization. And he makes this stupid distinction. 
And <laughs> Germany is surrounded by her enemies, Russia, for example, or France, and that Germany means something, that the roots in Germany are sort of roots about yearning and striving and soul and spirit, and these things matter, and the culmination of this may be the music of Wagner. So, he, so he's having these thoughts, and these thoughts are so far away from his brother, his older brother, who's cosmopolitan, who's, who's, a, who's almost a pacifist, who says there's, there's no victory in war, they're just the dead. So he brings that with him he, he, to America. So he actually says at one point in America, and, and he means it, wherever I am, Germany is. In other words, that he believed that the language was the fundamental thing, and he carried the language with him to America, and he wrote in the language. He felt that while Germany itself, the country and its people, were dead spiritually, he had carried something valuable out of the country, brought it to California, and had it in his study, and worked with it every day. But I think he never stopped feeling that somehow that Germany's destiny could be corrected, and that he, in his writing, would be an important element in making that happen. In America, he was taken terribly seriously. And in a way, this is where the real problems start because, you know, Roosevelt likes him enormously and thinks that he can work with him, meaning that Thomas Mann is a German for the future, that, that he represents German culture in the past, but he believes in democracy. He is an implacable enemy of Hitler. And therefore, there was no Japanese leader of similar sort in the America of the war. In other words, having a German like Thomas Mann, or indeed Einstein, but Thomas Mann spoke the language of politics, you know, and his speeches became hugely important, as he did his broadcasts. And um, you know, thousands and thousands would come to hear him speak in this faltering English. And um, his, his speech was usually called the coming victory of democracy. And what he was trying to talk about was not the defeat of Germany, but the rise of a democratic bourgeois Germany. And um, this obviously pleased people enormously because they saw some, not just some way out of the war for America, but some way out of the war for Germany and that, that, that there would be some hope. So he, he represented all that. But of course, the problem he had was that he, he had learned this new politics quite late in his life and that many people remembered him as a much more hesitant figure in relation to such things as democracy. So he, he made an enormous effort in America to be plausible. Because he came to um, a rejection of Hitler quite late in, in, in the 30s. But, but he also, he, he liked to be an important person, didn't he? And that... Oh, he loved nothing than being given a doctorate and then... And, you know, he loved nothing more than being the guest of honour. Oh, yeah, no, he, 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 he loved all that. And, and, and it mattered enormously to him so that he was easily flattered. And, uh, <laughs> and that's a lovely thing. You know, it's, it's such a weakness. Yes, he loved being on a podium. Despite all that, he did go into his study every morning at around nine. Yeah. And he was disturbed on lunchtime. And that was throughout his life. And he worked every morning. And if you do that over a lifetime, you end up producing a library of books and many, many speeches. And, you know, the household revolved around the fact that the magician was in his study and no one was to disturb him. And, um, and then he would emerge. Now, the problem with him emerging is that he emerged, especially after the First World War, he emerges with these growing children who are so opinionated, who are so troublesome. He has a daughter called Erica, who eventually married W.H. Auden, get an English passport, but she's lesbian, she's um, 
being photographed all the time. She's either writing for magazines or magazines are writing about her. You know, she's driving a fast car. She's got a new girlfriend. She just has to get married suddenly for no reason. Then she gets divorced for no reason. And um, her brother, Klaus, who's with her all the time, hanging on. He's a writer. He's writing plays. The two of them are in Berlin. Then they're going to Persia suddenly. Then they tour the world suddenly. People think they're their man twins. And of course, they, the minute they come home, they want, of course, they want money. They always want money. He's always funding them all. But, of course, they, they dominate the table. Erica says at one point, actually, I want to make a rule at this table. Anyone who speaks can be interrupted immediately. And my mother says, does that stretch to you? And she says, no, 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 not, no, not at all. And one day her, her sister is crying and she says, this is not a time for tears. And her sister says, who decides? I do. Uh, so she was tremendously bossy and she smoked and her brother took drugs and they were really, they were, I mean, you can just imagine if you're a national socialist and you want order and you want some, these two <laughs> really were red rags to the, to the national socialists. And they just did whatever they liked. And um, they became more famous than their father. He had to, but every time he came out of his study, he had to deal not only with these two, but a, but a sardonic third son called Golo. And Golo was very clever. And Golo, um, you know, warned him more than the others did about Hitler. Golo saw it coming because he kept reading newspapers. He kept cutting yes. things out. And so Golo was the one who saw more than his father did. If I were giving advice to a novelist, you know what you're always saying, do you have advice to give to a young... Yes, I do. Never, ever write a novel with six children. It is a nightmare trying to keep... I mean, it's like keeping cats at a crossroads because, you know, you can do the older ones, but then there are three more called Monica, Elizabeth and Michael. And you have to keep them in play in each chapter, they have to do something or say something. But if it looks imposed or not organic, then the reader will go, oh yeah, I know why you're putting this in, just you know, for the sake <laughs> But then if you don't put them in, you lose them. And by the time you bring them in again, people say, who was Monica? <laughs> That's right. Technically you have to do this, but if you do it, you end up that the family, Kathy has wife, his six children, his brother Heinrich, end up taking up a lot of space in the book. There's an element that he himself, as a sort of ghost in the book, that he comes into a room, but he never makes any noise. He doesn't speak much in the book. He's always watching. And all the noise is being made by everyone else. He tends not to make noise. He's quiet spoken, he's watchful, and he's often silent. But his children are sure not silent. I mean, when there's an extraordinary thing occurs after the First World War, I think called the Munich Revolution. And there's a very good book about it called Dreamers. Poets, in the name of communism, took over Munich and made it into a sort of Soviet. It didn't last long, but they had the power for a time. Of course, the man household is really worried about this. A, because they can't get eggs or flour, they can't get anything. B, that they're so well known for their bourgeois lifestyle that they could easily be taken out and shot, because that's mm. happening. So they, they warn the children to be really quiet in front of the servants, not to say anything that will disturb, that news will get out, what's being said in the man household. But they only warn the, warn the first two. They forget that Golo can hear everything. Even though he's just coming into his teens, he starts to go around the house shouting, we're all going to be shot. We're all <laughs> going to be shot. And this is great for me because I suddenly I brought Golo into the picture. So everyone starts paying attention to him. I mean, I mean the big project for Thomas Mann um, after, I suppose, 1938 is to get all of them out of Germany and out of Europe because, of course, they will be targeted um, as his children. 
And this requires a great deal of diplomatic work because it becomes very difficult for anyone to get into America after 1939 or 1940. So he has to get one by one. And they're all adults now. In getting his daughter Monica out, um, he gets her a passage to Canada first. So she's going on a boat to Canada. It's called the Isle of Benares. And it's, um, it's torpedoed. And uh, her husband, who they've never met, you know, they're, they're going to meet him. Um, he's on a plank. They're both holding on to planks in the middle of the Atlantic. And he drowns in front of her. And she really never recovers from that. So that while he did live in sunshine for the Second World War, there was always the feeling, you know, that Golo was um, involved in the war. Klaus was in the, in the U.S. Army. Erica was a British journalist because she had a passport and she was, she, she was covering the war. So, so they, were, they were sort of at the war, but he wasn't. He was in his beautiful, beautiful house built in 1942, a piece of um, mid-century Southern California, sort of masterpiece house. Mm-hmm. And, um, but the worry was always there. Um, his brother Heinrich had left his first wife and his daughter behind. And, and his first wife was in um, terrorism concentration camp for the whole war and her health was completely destroyed. She died soon yeah. after His children didn't have a very high regard for him or they said he was a terrible father. <laughs> Anyone who's ever known the children of a famous father, there are two ways to go with that, you know. And they went the way of just no respect at all and just insulted him and, and, and came looking for money. But it wasn't as though they spent their time praising him or letting him speak at the table. There was always a sense of that, that they just had much more to say than he did. And that they had, I mean, there's a moment later in the book where, you know, they're all adults and the father just says something and Golo, his son, turns to him and says, oh, should we all be quiet now so you can write your books in your study? Meaning really sarcastic, I mean, really mean to him. And yet he got no, he got no respect in the house at all. And that was another aspect of a sort of ambiguity where he got so much respect in the world. But when he came in his own door, he was open to every form of itself from these brats, I mean, from these children who just, uh, had, you know, and he wondered, what do we do to make these children? So like this, and she says, well, we, maybe, you know, quite a lot. Maybe we actually did make them, you know, maybe it was us. He then ends up in California. And there's a very good book on this by Evelyn Jures. Um, it's called House of Exile. And um, describing Thomas Mann's brother, Heinrich, and his wife, uh, Nellie, who had been a barmaid, what happens is that all of the exiles, German exiles, go and live in Los Angeles. Hollywood is part of the reason, good weather, cheap housing, and also a lot of foreigners are there. But anyway, they all end up there. And of course, any group like that, that will end up um, in, in a place like that, um, it's a sort of an um, enclosed circle, and they all begin to bicker and fight, and amazing feuds break out between Brecht, who's left-wing, Thomas Mann, who's right-wing. They blame Thomas Mann for everything because, of course, his house is the biggest house. He goes to the White House to stay overnight. You know, he doesn't seem to have any particular problems. Whereas, of course, some of the German exiles are completely broke. And also Mm. others have been removed from their natural hinterland as writers, including his brother Heinrich, who's not well translated in America. So, and of course, um, he sets his sights on the most severe-looking German imaginable called Arnold Schoenberg, who's living, if you can believe it, in California. He looks like someone, and his music indeed, is like someone whose sunshine has never entered into any aspect of his spirit. You know, like he was a complete northern figure uh, with that sort of, um, uh, like he looked like someone who was going to come in to teach you Latin at any moment. And um, so man begins to think about him and eventually writes a novel in, in 
I think which is one of his masterpieces called Dr. Faustus, which deals with, with a German composer of the early 20th century who creates a revolution in the way music is composed, which Schoenberg had indeed done. But he also, um, also makes him syphilitic and is in league with the devil and he may even be homosexual. But someone actually puts, put all the offending passages onto a dictaphone as he gets to hear them. And he's actually appalled, and his being appalled is helped enormously by the widow of Gustav Mahler, who's called Alma Mahler. And Alma Mahler moves from one house to the other, pretending she's making peace, but in fact creating trouble. Culminating in a moment where in a supermarket in Brentwood, in Los Angeles, Schoenberg meets a woman from the German community and just says to her without any introduction or anything else, I do not have syphilis. And she's, what in the name of God are you talking about? And then he explained that, you know, Thomas Mann's figure, based on him partly, has syphilis. <laughs> People think he, he has it too. So then a big controversy breaks out in the newspapers and Thomas Mann has to put a note, a note which makes things much worse in the book, saying this book is not based on art. <laughs> because it makes everyone realise, oh my God, it really must be based on him. So, um, I mean, it takes a long time for peace to break out and, um, and eventually the Manns leave, they leave America. The, I think the McCarthy period and the beginning of the Cold War, they make life very uncomfortable for them. They arrived in America as heroes, but by 1951-52, they're no longer needed. Their novelty value is worn off, which in America, anyone who spends time in America knows your, your novelty value, where <laughs> any moment they send you home. And their novelty value wore off, and the FBI mm. were suspicious of them, and they went back to Switzerland. I, I was interested... Um particularly in the creative process that, um, where you describe man gets an idea for a book and it's as though it just pops into his brain. It was more that he goes up to see his wife who's in Davos and she has tuberculosis mm. and he goes to visit her. And, you know, he gets x-rayed. And I think it's like almost if you're a novelist and you see something absolutely brand new. I think like, for example, Kako Ishiguro having seen her robot immediately thinking, that's a novel. You can write a novel about a robot and it will be a new, fresh way of approaching material in the novel. Similarly, the X-ray, the idea of being able to see, if you'd never thought of one before or known about one before, and being X-rayed yourself, there's something oddly sexual. I mean, there isn't now. I mean, now it's the driest thing you could possibly Yes. (laughs) But I'm talking about the beginning of the idea. Also, Thomas Mann, who's so much hidden, you know, his, his sort of erotic life was so sort of hidden and weird. And so, um, he's, uh, so he starts to realise immediately that this sanatorium and the life in it actually could yield something very interesting in a novel. And um, so, so in that moment, he gets something. I think Dr. Faustus is more gradual, but Death in Venice is written straight after. I mean, it's, he just goes straight home, having been in Venice and seen that boy on the... The biographers became really busy and really good. So they, they tracked down all these years later, that boy, 60 years later, they found him. Yes, there was an article about him recently. He's had a terrible life. stared up and gawked at by this um, <laughs> German. And um, even funnier, when Thomas Mann was 75, he fell in love with a waiter in a hotel in Switzerland, a guy called Franzel. And he was a sort of fleshy sort of fellow, and he, Thomas Mammoth with his wife and his daughter. And they were so delighted that he, his spirits were so lifted by this waiter that they would arrange meetings for Thomas Mann and the waiter. 
And um, he actually says in his diary, and it's one thing I couldn't use it in the book because it just sounded so unlikely. If you put it into a book, people would think, <laughs> what an interesting race where life is sort of much more complex and interesting than anything in a novel. He actually says in his diaries, all the fame I've won, my Nobel Prize, I would give it all up for his love. I just found that sentence just too hard to deal with, and I left it out of the book. But I do have him meeting the waiter. Obviously enjoys these, um, you know, this is a big part of his life, but he's, at this point he's 75. Hmm. And that, that meeting, uh, his wife facilitated it for him. Yeah, that Katia, you know, we have to remembering how sardonic she is and how good-humoured and how worldly she is. And she's not, not going to be shocked by anything. You know, three, her first three children are, are homosexual. Mm. Um, I mean, the only thing that she shocks her, of course, as, as it is the idea of suicide, but there's certainly the sexual, um, you know, sexual strangeness or sexual um, adventure is something that she that doesn't doesn't bother her. No. He, slightly, she's a highly modern person. Uh, I'm aware that your time is precious, but I was wondering if you could read read a little uh, bit from, from the book for us. Thomas Mann's mother came from Brazil. This is a very staid, solid um, Lubeck commercial community, and they have a great relationship with Brazil because they make all the marzipan in Germany, mm. and so they need the sugar. And so the ships are coming back and forth. And, and indeed, then people begin to come back and forth. So Julia Mann, Thomas Mann's mother, um, her father was German, but was living in Brazil. And she married a Brazilian who, who had mixed blood. And so this girl, age seven or eight, arrives back in Lübeck. And she's, um, you know, she's exotic. When she's very young, when she's about 18, she marries a senator and, and has these children. But Thomas Mann always talked about that idea that in him were two utterly opposing forces. Which had, which had created something. And um, at the end, uh, in 1943, he's in California, and he's very much involved uh, looking at the German um, war as an outsider, you know, that he, does, he's, he really wants Germany to be defeated. And he realizes the price Germany will have to pay for Hitler will be these, these extraordinary aerial bombings of the cities. And um, it isn't exactly callous, but he, he isn't in fear, you know, he isn't a German worrying will it come tomorrow. And, um, but so that Lübeck is really raised to the ground. Um, and uh, he does feel the loss, but nonetheless not as though, you know, he's seeing it from outside. But in the end, of course, he has to go back to Lübeck. He has to see the very place where he set Buddenbrooks, the place of his childhood, where really everything has been destroyed. And one thing that really strikes him is that the grave of a composer called Buxtehude has disappeared. In other words, that the bombs went into the ground, into the earth, dug up the dead and made dust of them. And that um, this is on his mind because, of course, in every church, even still in Lübeck, you go into church on a Sunday and there's, there's either an organist playing books to Huda, there's a piano singing books to Huda, there's a choir belting out books to Huda. But you know, it's, the, it's the home. If you like books to Huda, you should go to Lübeck. Anyway, he was considered a great composer in his day. And um, this is this is the late 17th, um, early 18th century. And um, among those who thought he was great were Handel and Bach. And Bach famously walked across Germany as a young man to meet this great organist and composer so that he could learn something from him. Thomas Mann is back in Lübeck. The war is over and the city is somewhat still rubble. And um, he's getting an award. And it's, it's, it's as though his life has come round again, but he doesn't feel like that. And he gets up early on a Sunday morning and um, 
he's having coffee and he suddenly something comes back into his mind that he'd completely forgotten. And um, a story came to him. It must have been told by his mother often when they were children. It was a story about Bookster Huda's daughter. Each year the story went when young organists came, including Handel himself, to learn the secrets of his trade from Bookster Huda. Bookster Huda promised each one that he would tell him enough to make him the greatest composer in the world if he agreed to marry his youngest daughter, Anna Margareta. But even though his daughter was beautiful and accomplished, all the visitors refused, since all of them had romantic commitments at home, and therefore they left without learning the secret. And then, as a suitor was finally found for his daughter, a suitor who had no interest in music, Buxerhuda was afraid he would die and the secret would be lost to the world. Little did he know that a very young composer in Arnstadt had heard about him and decided to walk all the way to Lübeck to see if he could discover the secret. Thomas, the young composer's name was Johann Sebastian Bach, his mother said, and he walked to Lübeck through wind and rain. Often he could find no boarding house and had to sleep in haystacks or in fields. Often he was hungry. Very often he was cold. But he was always sure of his purpose. If he could get to Lübeck, he would meet a man who would help him to become a great composer. Buxtehude was almost in despair. Some days he really believed that his sacred knowledge would be buried with him. Another day in his heart, he knew that someone would come and he dreamed that he would recognize the man immediately. And he would take him to the church and he would share his secrets with him. How would he recognize the man? Thomas asked. The man would have a light in his eyes, his mother said, or something special in his voice. But how could he be sure? Wait, wait, he, his mother said, he's still on his journey and he's worried. And every day the walk seems longer. Bach has told the man he works for that he will be away only a short time. He does not realize how far Lübeck is. But he does not turn back. He walks on and on, asking all the time how far Lübeck is. But it is so far that some people he meets have never even heard of Lübeck and advise him to turn back. But he's determined not to. Eventually, when he reaches Lüneburg, he's told that he's not far from Lübeck. And the fame of Buxterhude has spread to there. But because of all his time on the road, poor Bach, normally so handsome, now looks like a tramp. He knows that Buxtehude will never receive a man as badly dressed as he is. He's lucky. A woman in Lüneburg, when she learns of Bach's plight, offers to lend him the clothes. She has seen the light in him. And so Bach arrives in Lübeck. When he asks for Buxtehude, he's told that he will be in the, Mar the Marienkirche, practicing the organ. And as soon as Bach steps into the church, Buxtehude senses that he's no longer alone. He stops playing and looks down from the gallery and sees Bach. And behind him, he sees the light. The light Bach has carried with him all the way, something glowing in his spirit. And he knows that this is the man to whom he can tell the secret. But, but what is the secret? Thomas asked. If I tell you, his mother said, will you promise to go to bed? Yes. It is called beauty. His mother said, the secret is called beauty. He told him not to be afraid to put beauty into his music. And then for weeks and weeks and weeks, Buxtehude showed him how to do that. Did Bach ever give the woman back the clothes? Thomas asked. Yes, he did. On his way home and on her piano, he played music for her that she thought came from heaven. Some windows, Thomas is in Lübeck, 
Some windows Thomas saw in the old family house, the house of Buddenbrooks, were boarded up. The mayor had promised that the whole building would soon be restored. Lubeck, it appeared, was proud of it now, the house that had given life to a book. Thomas, as he stood in front of it, wished he could ask one of the others, his siblings, Heinrich, Carla, Lula, Victor, if they too remembered the story about Buxtehude and Bach did not come into his mind for years. Thank you. Thank you so much, Colm. Um, it's been a great pleasure talking to you and I, an absolute pleasure to read that book. It's so enlightening. It reads like a thriller at times. It's engrossing. It's fascinating. Think about lots of things. I, I listened to books to Hudo last night and I have to confess I haven't read Thomas Mann, so I'm going, going to. And um, I'm sure people attending today, they've got a great treat for them in store if they haven't read The Magician. It's a wonderful book and congratulations. Thank you very much, Mark. And thank you, Christine. Thank you so much to all of you that joined us. I hope that we see you again. Hey, thank you. Thank you. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or to receive our free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production for this podcast was by me, Nico Kelly. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty was never ceded.